Hello, and welcome back to a very special episode of App Philosophy Weekly, where we unwrap the tech of today. I'm your host, Bram Shank, and today I'm joined by a wonderful guest, Christian Selling. Now, he is the developer behind the award-winning hit Reddit client, Apollo. I want to start off. What did it feel like seeing your app on the big stage just 10 days ago at WWDC? Pretty much entirely disbelief. I think I stared at the screen for quite a while before it set in. Because Will, I think, was actually the first person to text me about it. And I was looking at his message and kind of being like, what? You're kidding me. And my girlfriend, who was watching the keynote, too, was like, no, no, Apollo's on screen again. And I was like, try to look between both. And I was like, oh, my gosh, no, it totally is. Were you already texting friend of the show, Will Sigmund, about it? Yeah, he sent me a text. I just saw Apollo and he attached a screenshot of it. And I was trying to look at the picture and be like, oh, my God, that is Apollo. I see the icon there. And then, of course, I hear, no, it's on screen, too. So <laughs> I quickly what looked up there. And, yeah. I was taken back. I'm like, wow, Apollo's up on stage. I was so happy for you when I saw that. Uh, Christian, how are you doing today? Great. It's not as warm. I don't think it's in California, but it's in, here in Eastern Canada. It's starting to warm up a little bit. We just broke 112 here. I think we're at about 80 here if I know my American units, but so we're not nearly as bad. Now, one of the things uh, people wanted me to ask you, the number one question is, okay, iOS 15's here. Apple's packed in a bunch of new APIs, both for iOS and iPadOS 15, Mac OS Monterey, and so forth. What's in store for Apollo, given all these APIs that were released? Can you give us a little sneak peek, a little background? <laughs> for me, I think the biggest parts, I think, are... Well, one, as with all iOS releases, you've got to wait a little bit until iOS 15 adoption hits mm -hmm. to use some of the cooler stuff. But even some of the other stuff like uh, SharePlay, I think looked really cool. And I'd love to see if there's anything creative I could do there. They did a lot on the iPad side with uh, keyboard shortcuts and not only the shortcuts, but the navigation where you can use your arrow keys a lot better and that whole focusing system. I was working on something like that independently. And the fact that it's caked into iOS now will make everything a lot easier on me. All so, baked in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then SwiftUI looks like another year where it got a lot better. So I'm excited to integrate more of that into Apollo going forward because it's always looked really slick, but there's always been a few little paper cuts that give me a little hesitance, but now it's looking great. Now we spoke a little bit about all this stuff uh, off the show, but what's it like as a developer? Cause you really have to, you, it's easy to get excited about what kind of APIs Apple's revealing and what's possible every year. But when you look at your statistics, a lot of people are still on an older version. I think it's tricky because anybody sees like you have 1% of users say on an old version mm -hmm. and you multiply that across your users and you go oh, crap. That's like a thousand users who, what person running a business wants to be like, Oh yeah, screw a thousand users. So it always hurts a little bit. At some point you just got to bite the bullet. And especially where iOS 13 is compatible with 14, which is compatible with 15 uh, device wise, yes. there's no lack of support there. It's pretty easy to justify. And at this point I'm crazy enough to still be supporting 12 just because there hasn't been anything that's, made me yet jump ship like i'm on the cusp now but i've actually got more ios 12 users than 13 right now which is because of the device compatibility that's interesting yeah i think i just have to bite the bullet at this point and go 14 and 15 only yeah it's a hard decision that apple puts you in a little bit because like you said no business owner wants to make to have to make that call as far as cutting off users just a few years back apple introduced a, a new feature that will allow people who are running older operating systems to download an older version of the app. 
is how does that work or how does that reflect? Do you, you log on there in the portal and say, here's the cutoff. If you're running iOS 12, you have to run an earlier version of my app. I'm not even sure if there's any developer facing toggles there. I think it's literally, it'll detect what version you're on. And if you previously downloaded it, if you go back to your purchases screen, it'll restore. But I don't think, and I might be wrong, if you search for it, I'm not even sure it'll show up anymore. And especially mm -hmm. I'm almost positive. So when you look at features that were introduced, for instance, with iPad OS 14, where Apple was able to consolidate these tab views on the bottom that Apollo is famous for utilizing into list views on a pop-out menu on the side. Is that something that you're waiting to implement until the bulk of your users are on at least 14? Yes and no. That I love that UI style. And I think mm -hmm. Apollo would benefit a lot from it. It's, but I think uh, <laughs> that's like too much with the iPad UI. I think I want to do something a little different there. I like the sidebar concept. But I think with Apollos, for instance, you'd have like the five items up there and a good mm -hmm. app would shove like a bunch more like photos, for instance. And I think where I want to put some more things in there, I have things I might want to put in there that I think I might be able to do something a little more fun with than maybe the default sidebar UI, which is great. But I, I think I kind of want to just have a little bit more fun with it, but it's definitely coming. I love that you really focus on creating distinct experiences when as far as moving from device to device whether it be an iphone or an ipad or even the mac fun fact the the ipad version runs on apple silicon Macs, which is so mm. cool that was one of the first things i tried to download when i picked up my m1 was to see if apollo was there because who wants to log on to the web version one of the things when i downloaded apollo for the first time and i think this was back in 2017 was when i downloaded it Ooh. for the first time myself it felt so distinctly Apple, like it was right. so well thought out, so clean. And you're thinking to yourself, this is the way that Reddit should be. Why can't Reddit's official uh, Reddit app be this good? Where did you, how did you start to formulate an idea of what you wanted this app to be? Were you frustrated with Reddit, their official app? What, what motivated you to create Apollo? Funnily enough, it took me so long to build Apollo that not only was there not an official app at the time, there wasn't even talks of an official app at the time <laughs> like like it was <laughs> when i first started working on it back in like 2014 alien blue was still the big the big guy on campus and it was still independently run and i still remember like the day my friend was like oh my god reddit bought a, a alien blue are you gonna how does that affect your plans i'm like oh geez i don't know i'm gonna i guess i'll just keep trucking on and uh, it went from alien blue independently owned alien blue bought by reddit to alien blue is the official app to there's a new official app and then I finally released. So it was a long process and it wasn't anything against the official Reddit app or any app. It was just, there wasn't anything out there that kind of scratched my own itch. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking for, at the time I was just finishing up university. I wanted a personal project to keep going with iOS and get better. And I like building stuff typically. And I used Reddit a lot as a lot of university students do. And it just felt like a natural fit for something I wanted to take a swing at. And at the time, there just wasn't anything out there that, like you said, had that feel like Apple built it. And which struck me as weird because there was a lot of great apps, say for Twitter, like Tweetbot and Twitterific and whatnot yes. and Tweety that did exactly that. Like, I love these that you just pick them up and you instinctively had an idea to use them because you used an iPhone. They were intuitive. And yes. I just didn't feel like that for, for Reddit. As great as Alien Blue was, it just had some little paper cuts for me. 
And yeah, so I thought it would be an opportunity to maybe take a swing at it and hope it resonated with other people too. So for you, it really was one of those things where through using things like Alien Blue or logging onto the web version, right? There's something in the back of your head, just as you said, scratching an itch going, this could be better. And, and especially if it's something you use as often as Reddit. Like it's one thing if you're like, yes. you log onto a to-do list for 15 minutes a day to log in some stuff. If there's a paper cutter too, it's fine. But man, if you're using it for like three or four hours a day, which I mean, arguably you probably shouldn't, but if you are... <laughs> those paper cuts start to add up and you're like, oh, if this was just smoother, like I use it a thousand times a day, I make that interaction a thousand times a day. If that was smoother, oh my God, like the payoff that would give me. And that kind of, that was the basis for everything. That's interesting. Now, when you see Apple introduce features, uh, particularly with SwiftUI this year, like async and away, a lot of people, a lot of average consumers watching the conference, the last half hour was a little confusing. They were like, is this a consumer conference or a dev conference? This is a little confusing. What's going on? What does async and await mean? Can you give us sort of the plain English version of what that means for all apps and maybe even your app, Apollo, moving forward? Yeah, no problem. So basically the gist of it is so many things you do in code are synchronous, which would be the opposite of that. And that's just a fancy word mm -hmm. for saying it happens immediately. Like you go three plus three, you'll hopefully get six and it'll happen immediately. Other stuff like with networking, say I'm go, give me the list of subreddits. I send that request off and I'm just watching my clock, waiting for that internet connection to kick off, Reddit to respond and it to come back. And the last thing you want to do in that time is just completely lock up the app while it's waiting for that. Like you want to let the user continue to scroll and whatnot. So you've got to do the task asynchronously, which just basically means in the background. And the tricky thing with that is you've always been able to do that, but it's not the most, from a programmer perspective, it's not the most comfortable and it's fraught with errors because a lot of the time you're just, you kick off a little thing where you say, Hey, I'll be over here if you want, uh, when you want to tell me when you're done and then I'll hopefully re-interject back. And it creates this like confusing flow of where the program's going, where you have some stuff that's over here, hopefully waiting for this to finish. This other stuff's happening right now. And it's just, you have a lot of balls in the air more or less. And the async await just, it, it hopes to, flatten that all into making it one straight down nothing's jotting out in either direction you're just waiting for the thing to happen but you're not it's a little confusing but it, you, so it's my understanding is it's a more intuitive and linear way to exactly linear would be the right multitasking word. processes to your app there's things going on in the background that the user isn't aware of that's maybe speeding up a linear task, a straightforward task. Right. In a perfect world, and I guess how human brains like to work is your program would almost go if you're sliding down a hill. It's just everything's straight. It just, you get to the bottom, it's predictable. But programs with a lot of networking code can start to look like a tree where you've got 15 different branches going off in different ways. And then when all those branches are finished, trying to reconnect them back to the main trunk is you're probably going to mess something up. And this is Swift's attempt at saying, let's try to take that tree and flatten it into something that's more of a sled. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where anyone can make an app and that is basically dragging Swift UI elements onto a, a simulator and puzzle piecing together an app just visually? Imagine not even having to touch code and just building simple list views just by dragging elements onto a screen. That's an interesting question. I would say yes. And I think to a certain extent, you can do a microcosm of that in SwiftUI currently. Like mm -hmm. you can drag in like the text elements and it's, you still have the code aspect, but it's smart enough to fill all those aspects in for you. As someone who hasn't looked into that area a lot, I'd 
almost wonder if the better avenue wouldn't be to make the code aspect just more approachable and more less scary to individuals. And I think things like SwiftUI are doing a great job of that. I just, I can't help but think that a lot of those drag and drop UIs are obscuring a lot of information that can help to conceptually understand what you're doing. And mm-hmm. I, it's one of those things where if I can do it, like I, I don't consider myself a particularly great person all the time. And I don't think code is that hard. A lot of people love to say it is and make it sound like it because it makes them feel fancier about their job, but it's fundamentally <laughs> not. There's aspects of it that are for sure, but the base points of building an app aren't that hard. And I think it's like anything, like if you, if I told somebody who had never picked up a saw before to go build me a chair, they'd have a lot of trouble with that. But is building a chair difficult? I, I, I don't think so. It's just something that you've got to put the hours into and get used to the tools. And I think programming is just anything like that. Like a lot of people pick it up for the first time and they're like, dang, this is hard. You got to put the hours in. And I think Swift and Swift UI, I think would be very approachable. I think I could teach someone pretty quickly up to speed. And, and that kind of leans into the next question I wanted to ask you is for all those aspiring developers out there, where would you recommend they start? How did you learn to code? I mean, what was your journey like with that? My journey definitely wasn't efficient. It's one of those ways where you learn about what to do by not doing any of the right things. I'd be like, oh, if you want to learn, you read a book. So I'd like sit down and read an entire book and then be like, sit down in front of my keyboard and be like, I retained zero of that. I read the words, they kind of clicked, but just nothing committed to memory. It's one of those things where it's helpful to learn how you learn. And for me, it was, I'm very much like a get my hands dirty kind of guy. So Mm -hmm. I found much more than reading a book, which is useful. Don't get me wrong. I found I'd be like, okay, I want to build like something really simple. Like I just want to change the background color of this view and basically make a multicolor flashlight with a screen. Let's look up a tutorial on that and then I'll try to understand it. And if I don't, maybe I'll ask questions in Stack Overflow or something. And then maybe challenge myself a little bit more. I'll maybe try to build a to-do list. And then you're just putting some like text on screen, basically. And I found that works so much better for me because I'd have this, I'd be applying it in a way that stick to my memory so much more. And it was just more fun than reading, like actually seeing things come to life. I really enjoyed. So I would say anything that as a beginner, I would try to do something, find something that gets you building as quick as possible. And that's why I typically recommend Paul Hudson over at Hacking with Swift has a great like hundred day tutorial for a beginner. Like you just, it's free. You, you don't have to have any programming experience. You just start it and it walks you through like the basics of programming, the basics of getting things on screen and you're building little things as you go. And I think it's a very easy recommendation to make for a new programmer. And it's the kind of thing I really wish I had when I was around because I was just looking at Objective-C manuals. <laughs> it was pro. There's so many resources nowadays. And I love that because for all we know, we could be setting that spark, setting that fire within someone who's just listening to this show and is just wondering, where do I start? I want to build apps like Christian does. And that's, that is so wonderful that you're sharing that. Did Reddit play a huge part in you learning how to code and do all this? It's definitely arguably why I code today. I think it was more Apple at the beginning that got me into coding, just insofar Mm as it was like the last year of high school for me. And I didn't 100% know what I wanted to do, like going forward. And this was at the time when there was like all those, like there's an app for that commercials and apps for the whole biggest thing. And I just thought it was so cool that you could build something. And you heard all these little stories on the news of this small guy from Wisconsin building something and putting it on the app store and it beer app or something and it got really popular and I beer. I remember yeah, that exactly you hold the, the iphone this lane 
Yeah. Oh yeah. It, yeah. I swear that turned like a bunch of people into programmers, but it's, I just thought that was the coolest <laughs> thing. As and simple I was like, as that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to do that. And it just, before that, like I knew of software is, oh, you could oh, make a spreadsheet calculator on your computer or something like it wasn't that glamorous. And with the iPhone stuff, it just really sounded a lot more exciting to me. So it's like, okay, I want to get into that. And I started playing with that a little bit at the end of high school. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go to school for computer science and learn this properly. Yeah. And that was kind of, that was it for me and just naturally fell into the Reddit side of things. That's very interesting. I could see I was growing up. I was one of the first kids in school to have an iPhone. And Ooh. it was one of those things where you just, you, you, not only do you feel like the coolest kid on campus, but you felt limitless with all this, this power in the palm of your hand. And there really was back in the day, that sort of thought of what will those developers create next? What will I be able to do tomorrow? And so there, there was definitely this Renaissance era of developers. And it seems like you, you were a part of that. That's what motivated you. Yeah, for sure. It was, yeah, it was like almost infectious, just the everybody. It was such a fun time in computing. Do you think that energy, that enthusiasm behind app development is still very much alive today? Or do you think it's plateaued a little bit? That's a good question. If it's plateaued at a much higher point than it was when I was in school, because I just, I see so many young people doing, and maybe it's just the nature of the connected internet and it was always that way, but I see so many young people doing such incredible things like on Twitter and the iOS communities that I just like at like 15 or 16, when I was like, took me two more years to realize computers were a thing you could do for a job. And it's just, I don't think it's slowed down at all. And there's, like we said, there's so many more resources available for getting into it. And I, I feel like it's more accessible than ever before. And iPhones are so much more, and smartphones in general, so much more ubiquitous now than they ever were that I feel like I bet it's bigger than ever before. Like the, the enthusiasm still really feels like it's there and there's incredibly cool stuff coming out every day. And, and with Apple, I love that you use the word accessibility because with these virtual events that we've had, as far as WWDC goes, Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference has been virtual for these past two years, these past two conferences, uh, which is making these all these developer resources more accessible than ever. You can, you can, you who knows whose interest you might pique now that this these conferences are just showing up on YouTube, and all these resources <laughs> and links to all this stuff are built right into the Apple Developer app and baked right in. They're they're more accessible than ever. Oh, it's incredible. And we have the Slack lounges this year. So you're just rubbing shoulders with every cool developer, the people who created Swift. It was really neat. And more importantly, the, the conference is, was available to more people for free. You think about mm. getting a ticket to WWC, you know, is upwards of $2,000 just to sit in that audience. And, and that's not even counting the fact that you do have to go through a lottery and all these things if you're not uh, sponsored or part of a scholarship or something right. like that. Now, on the topic of accessibility, and, and we talked a little bit about Swift Playgrounds, I want to zero in on the iPad. Do you think, obviously, Apple introduced all these new features to Swift Playgrounds on the iPad to try to make learning to code with Swift UI more accessible? They were marketing this as a stepping stone to X. It's not quite Xcode, but you can run and simulate some aspects of your app on the iPad, assuming it's all based on Swift UI, which a lot of today's apps still aren't. Mm. How much of your app is built on Swift and how much of it is built on Objective-C if you were to ballpark just on percentage? 
Oh, it's probably 99% Swift at this point. Yeah, there's like a little legacy code that's Objective-C, but it's at this point, Swift's almost like seven years old. It's pretty easy to have a lot of Swift code at this point. <laughs> so what do you see as limitations that are still there when it comes to Swift as compared? A lot of people are saying that Swift still has a lot of growing to do as compared to Objective-C, which is the, the legacy uh, language. Honestly, I I would challenge that pretty hard. I don't think I've had, I'm very comfortable with Objective-C. Like I built quite a bit of Apollo before rewriting it in Swift and I have other apps in Objective-C. So I've had every opportunity to go back to, and the way Xcode works is it's not all or nothing. Like you can just, you'd be like, oh, I want this random file in Objective-C. Like it's very easy to do. And I've never reached for Objective-C in like the last seven years. I think there's a lot of people that just Objective-C, some people have started using it like in the nineties and it's just, it's their like (laughs) weapon. Like they know it inside and out. And I completely get that. And a lot of them are just wary to change over to something that is significantly Well, nobody newer. likes change. Exactly. But I think it feels a little false maybe to paint Swift as, as like, it's fine to be comfortable with Objective-C more, but I don't think Swift mm-hmm. is in any way at this point, seven years in, really lacking in anything. Because I'd just be, I'd be cautious of a newcomer hearing that and being like, oh gosh, do I need to learn Objective-C as well? And then they're scared off with all these like crazy pointers and everything. And it, that was a, a widespread idea in the community for a while for people who were curious about learning how to code chiefly for uh, the iOS ecosystem was, wait, do I need to learn Objective-C to even understand Swift? Yeah, that was a hard question to answer for quite a few years and being like, geez, I don't know. There's so many great resources out there that are like written in like 2011 that are Objective-C only. So you have, even if you're like a Swift only person, like being able to go back and read those Objective-C kind of Bibles is very helpful. But at this point, they've almost all been rewritten. So it's a lot easier. And, and they're like, less honest- hands-on. Exactly. And there's, honest to goodness, there's people out there that I would very easily consider better developers than myself who came in after Swift came around and literally probably couldn't write a single line of Objective-C and you know Swift. So I'd say if there's some incredible developers out there who only know Swift and only build in Swift, I, I think you're probably fine. You mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you're a very hands-on learner. And I think today's ecosystem, even learning how to program chiefly using Swift is a very hands-on process. A lot of people are starting off in Swift playgrounds, whether it be on the Mac or the iPad, and it really is a hands-on experience. It's type in a couple lines of code and see how this character on the screen moves, which direction will it go? Did, Did you code this properly? And the bottom line is, and you're supporting this is Swift is a very robust programming language. It's going to last quite a while. Do you think these features that Apple is adding to the iPad will help usher in the the next age of developers? Do you think that's the solution? Or do you think the long-term solution should be just to find a way to port Xcode over onto the iPad? I think any friction you lessen is going to have a profound impact when you're at Apple scale. Like you've got like a billion devices out there. If 0.001% of them get into Swift Playgrounds because they're in the fall and it wasn't there the previous fall. That's a ton of exposure to something that wasn't ever there before. So I think at Apple scale, yeah, it's going to make a massive difference. And like, would I like Xcode for iPad? Yeah, it would be cool to have, but I'd, I'd almost wonder if there'd be downsides to that too. And that like Xcode can be quite a bit to wrap your head around at first. Like, there's a lot yes. of menus, a lot of... How do you make um, that touch first? There's a lot of questions to be asked there. 
Oh yeah. And even if you could, how do you not make it like overwhelming as heck? Like sometimes I see a setting screen. I'm like, okay, I have to read all these to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong. And just, so sometimes it's just nice to not have them there. And it seems like Swift Playgrounds is just saying like 99% of these you don't need. You can port it to the Mac and run it out on Xcode there if you really need to, but we're just going to simplify things here. And I think that'll make it a lot more approachable to a lot of people who can just sit down and code and build the app they want without worrying about oh my God, why do I need to edit my schema and change my build config and all this stuff? It's just, it's there. And, and iPad's a huge deal. We heard the conference last fall, Cook was saying that a third of people are still buying an iPad for the first time. This is still very much an, an emerging market as far as the iPad goes. You take a look at numbers from this quarter, iPad grew by 37%. That's up 7% from last year's growth of 30% for quarter one, 2020. So quarter one, 2021 grew by 37%. These are crazy numbers. And obviously a lot of people picked one of these up because we were in the middle of a pandemic and you needed a video chat machine. But beyond that, we have to think about what kind of tools do people have at the tips of their fingers now? With this many iPads in the ecosystem into the hands of this many customers, maybe we're ushering in a new era of programmers that, that will learn on the iPad and build their way up toward a Mac. That's not to say that more people have an iPad than they do a Mac. Those numbers still aren't there. But I think it's important because you start to zero, on, zero in on the, the level of outrage that we heard. A lot of people were calling this last WWC just 10 days ago. They were calling it underwhelming. They were saying not a lot happened for the iPad. Apple's neglecting the iPad again. What are your thoughts on that? And where does, what kind of role does the iPad play in your everyday life, your ecosystem, as far as development? That's a really good question. I, I think, I, like I sympathize with people when they say the Apple uh, maybe isn't taking full advantage of what the iPad can offer, but all those people who say that, there's like, from what I can tell, there's either, there's two trains of thought. There's either just let it run Mac OS, which that's one person's, that's a line of thought and the other is it needs to be better but they don't necessarily like nobody can seem to put like together like a coherent it should be better in this way it's just like this yes. find the sky idea it should be better and the fact that nobody can come up with a full doctrine on what that should look like i think speaks to how just difficult it is there's so much baggage on the mac that you just don't want to just throw onto the ipad and call it a day because the ipad does do so many things great that you'd ruin by doing that so I think it's like, it's an intrinsically like really difficult problem to make this thing that was that, that excels in its simplicity and not destroy that by making it too complicated. So I, I sympathize with both sides. I suppose it's very political, but um, yeah. both it's, sides. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a tricky situation. But for me, I use the iPad mostly as like a comfort device for me. So. I do do content uh, creation on it as well. Like I'll answer a lot of emails on it. I do a lot of like exchange with people I find and I love drawing on it and whatnot. Uh, I still do the most of the work on my Mac just because I find that a little easier, but it's, if I'm tired of writing emails on my Mac, it's just nice to sit down with like the magic keyboard on a couch and bang an email out on your iPad. It just feels like less like work. And I, so I kind of just like my iPad for that. It just still blows my mind to this day to pick up this thing that looks like just like a little sheet of glass that is crazy powerful, beautiful, it's colors are nuts. And it's just, you're holding so much computing and just like a sheet of glass. And it's just, it's so fun for me to use all the time. And that's, I just try to use it whenever I can, basically. I definitely relate to that on such a high level. It's funny because 
people are always campaigning for more multitasking features, more multitasking. We need windows, we need pop-up menus and everything else for the iPad. But when I, every time I talk to people on this show, the number one answer is I love to focus on doing one thing at a time. I want the full screen experience. I like to focus on one thing at a time, get productive and just do, you know, it moves with your fingers. You're not barred by a keyboard or a cursor. They're there when you need it. But for the most part, you're doing these things with your hands and it just makes it so intrinsically fun. Oh, absolutely. And it's, yeah, so it's tricky. I think for a lot of people, especially us outside of the techie circle, um, don't like the multitasking. Like you hear so many times where somebody will get into the multitasking view and have no idea how to get out. And then you get a frantic phone call. So it's like an <laughs> anti-feature for most people. It's just us like edge case people that really want to push it to its limits. And I say that, but maybe having a Safari window up and a mail message up isn't the biggest power user. Maybe that is pretty typical, yeah. but it's tricky to do, like you said, in a way that you appease everybody. You don't want to shove the multitasking in everyone's face by having a windowing system like the Mac. And then, yeah, you get distracted easier. But you also want to make that accessible if you if it suits you. So it's such a tricky spot. It, it is a very tricky spot. And I think Apple's doing a great job this year of letting the everyday user, maybe not the pro user, but the everyday user know that, hey, these features are here. You see these three little dots in in the upper part of the portion of the screen centered on each app, each window, so to speak, that you're using, you see those three dots. And the first thought you're going to have is, what does this do? And you tap those and you see, oh, I I have the ability to tie all windows. And before you're multitasking. So there's no gestures to learn. There's none of these crazy things that all we professionals or prosumers had to learn. It's offering up multitasking as an option. And I think Apple's hope is that more people will start to to unleash the capability of what an iPad can do. But I, I love what you said about the iPad in that it's it's expected to be, when people buy an iPad, they expect it to be so in, intrinsically intuitive. And so when you have pros campaign for pro-like features, that rely on things like plugins that rely on things like windows and simulators and all these different things that run in the background. How do you do that? Does the iPad need its, its own pro OS? And then how does that segment the whole market and and what people have come to expect from an iPad? You want it to be intuitive right out of the box. In a parallel dimension, I wish Apple would just release like a, a touch MacBook pro and see is this what you guys want are you happy with this and just i feel like a lot of people would just be like no this isn't that great or maybe just like a tablet running mac os and they they could see that like the other side isn't necessarily always greener and i Mm -hmm. say that as someone who hasn't used it in that capacity maybe they're completely right but i i just i feel like it is it's such a tricky spot to be in where merging those two worlds is so tricky and i feel like maybe the solution is like Apple is keeping the Mac and the iPad separate for a reason. If you're like, I get more work done more quickly on the Mac. I wish I could do that on the iPad. Maybe the the solution isn't to try to shoehorn the iPad into what the Mac's already doing well for you. It's to say, look, Apple's building those products and they love them. Continue to use those. Everyone's happy. The iPad users, let's make tailor the experience to what they want. But it it seems Mm -hmm. weird to take a Mac user and shoehorn them into an iPad when they're already happy with something like, well, why challenge a good thing? 
is are we saying Macs are going to go away or something? It's 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 curious. Well, I love that you mentioned that because we saw Apple's previous VP of Worldwide Marketing. He's now an Apple Fellow, Phil Schiller. Uh, he's quoted on stage saying. We have no problem with cannibalizing our own products. In fact, we'd prefer to do that before a competitor comes along and, and, and eats us alive. They had no problem with cannibalizing the iPod with the iPhone. And so when you have things like this, you start to question, why is Apple trying to protect the Mac by not adding functionality to the iPad, or at least the functionality we've come to expect? And then, of course, we have that comparison that Steve Jobs always made where he said a, a Mac is a truck and an iPad is a car. Yeah, no. That, a truck, you fair. can put whatever you want into the back of it, load up things and take them places. A car is just meant to, to go fast and in one direction consistently. Yeah, the, he, he was the king of analogies for a reason like that. That suits <laughs> so well. And I feel like if you tried to say, look at a car and say like, how do we make this more trucky? Like, you're, yeah. you're just going to ruin the car. <laughs> Yes. And it's so maybe that is the, the end game there. Like the iPad's great at what it does and the Mac's great at what it does and combining them. Maybe that is tricky because I think like Windows has their own thing where you can grab a surface and it's iPad-y insofar as it's a detachable tablet. But I don't feel like a lot of iPad users would be happy with that experience. Like you said, a lot of the, the single pane, I'm distraction free. I'm just focused on this one thing is the beauty of it and having a Windows-y experience. I don't think would make them very happy. So it's one of those situations where, man, you're not going to appease everyone at all. I can also think back to Phil Schiller being on stage and they had a whole slide dedicated to this. He's, he had a whole slide and he said, lots of people have asked us, why haven't you brought touch capability to the Mac? And the truth is we've tried it. This is what he said. He said, we've tried it. And bottom line is it doesn't work. People don't like to keep raising their hand and touching the screen. And that was their reasoning. And yet, just a few years later, we have things like a floating smart keyboard, a magic keyboard, where you are raising your fingers up to push everything because it is an iPad and the ability to touch it is right there. And not everybody is going to stay on the cursor just because the keyboard has the capability. It's right. for when you need the precision and functionality of a cursor that that's why it was brought to the table. Right. It, yeah, no, it's that's a tricky one for me too, because like I say all this stuff about how touch Macs are weird. But like you, you use that magic keyboard setup for a while and you're, and you're swiping away and then maybe I'm just dumb, but once in a while I'll pick up my Mac and then try the same thing with yeah. like where it kind of registers. And I'm like, or like a video of um, like a seven-year-old who's only used an iPad mm -hmm. sit with their mom's laptop and start swiping at the screen. And you're like, it just oh, feels maybe, natural. Yeah. Maybe there is something there and we're just missing like. Maybe even if it's just swiping, like that should be a thing because I feel like an, it's become an expectation enough that even if it's not the best experience, like maybe we're just old and crotchety and like that's just <laughs> what it's expected of it right now. It's funny well, it's you, you mentioned that because uh, the, a lot of people had reactions to macOS Big Sur when it was introduced at last year's WWDC conference. And they said, this redesign looks very much like iOS, something that you'd expect from iOS. This control center looks very finger first. Is Apple finally going to bring touchscreens to the Mac? And I love that people were questioning that because a lot of people like to define Apple as this company that, that sticks uh, finitely to ideas and they, they never waver. No, they stick to values. They mm. stick to values and functionality and what people expect of their products. Steve Jobs is quoted as saying is we don't get the technology into our hands and then go, 
how can we leverage this technology? No, we start with an experience. What do we want people to see? What do we want them to feel? How do we want them to do it? And then we see how the technology fits in. And that's where the, it starts to become like putting a puzzle piece together. Right. Puzzle pieces together. When you look at something like Big Sur and the fact that the icons and the control center and all the menus do feel touch first, do you think Apple's going to change its mind on this at some point? We saw that with the Apple Pencil. Steve, Steve Jobs said, over my dead body, we're going to put a stylus on there. We're built with five of them and they're right here. And all That's of a sudden, true. Apple Pencil comes around and it's a smash hit. It has its place in the ecosystem creatively for people that are illustrating, or maybe they simply need that level of precision that the finger can't offer when they're jotting things down in notes. Yeah. And I think that's the mark of any good creator person, what have you. And I think Jobs was half decent at it too, was just once in a while, you can be like, okay, yeah, I, I guess I was wrong there. Especially with all the, with the epic trials and a lot of emails coming out, we even had some from Jobs where you'd see him and like Forstall talking and Forstall mm-hmm. at a good point and Jobs kind of be like, all right. Yeah, no, okay. That kind of that tracks. Okay. Let's do it that way then. And I, yeah, maybe they'll have to go that way on the Mac. For me, like my North star is always like the traffic lights. If those get bigger, I'll be a little suspicious. <laughs> those still, man, I would not want to touch those with my finger. They're so close, but yeah, I think as soon as those get bigger, that's when I'll start seeing like the Mac people in the water kind of thing. But yeah, it, it's tricky. I feel like, can I picture in like, 2040 like the mac not having any touch input like i just feel like it'll be so ubiquitous by that point so it becomes a question of when so i I feel like yeah like i'd be honestly surprised if by i don't know 2026 we didn't have anything five years from now that was mackie and And you mentioned the surface line and you you say look at how that worked out that it's not working out too well it's not what people expect from a computer it's great that it's touch first but it's running watered down Android app. A lot yeah. of these things that, that are, are running on ARM, which is this new architecture that Apple's using to build their chips, this scalable SOC system on chip architecture, they don't deliver what you'd expect even from a tablet of that stature, so to speak, That's with true. that chip, that silicon in it. And I think what Apple's really good at is building on foundational technologies. They really stick to, even though we basically saw iPad chips come to the Mac with Apple Silicon, they invented innovative new ways as far as how do you interact with Mac apps on an, on a MacBook now? How do you do that? Can you switch the trackpad into a gesture mode? Can you map your keyboard differently so that certain things are, are more natural? So there's a lot of questions to be asked at every corner. Bottom line, do you see these things converging into one Apple OS? You think that's in our future? Do away with the yeah, whole thing and tricky. just call it like, Apple OS. Yeah, no, it would certainly make the marketing easier. Yeah, it's tricky. Like you said, I I think like Windows has been trying that. Gosh, it must be almost like a decade that they've been swinging that bat now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there, there are some people who are like singing the song, like this is the best thing to ever happen to computing. This is my favorite device ever. I'm sure they're out there and you hear from some of them. But, but I agree with you that kind of just, it, it's the same as it's always been that like mice are such a fine precision instrument for like people draw with mice, like crazy art in some cases. And you can just click on an like exact pixel and our fingers are just so much more blunt. And so it's like just the idea of marrying these two like polar opposite concepts in a meaningful way is just so 
that sounds like such a gargantuan problem. But at the same time, it's, I don't see how you don't marry them as well, because who wants to be carrying around like 700 different UI concepts in their head? It, it would be nice if we could just all do one. So well, eh. these devices like mice and, and trackpads, they're so uh, intrinsically a part of our workflow. We rely on them every day and we're used to them. As you said, some people feel more comfortable drawing with a cursor using a mouse than they do a stylus. So for them, the stylus isn't an answer, but we have all these points of input. And at this, at this point, we've, we're very much used to things like the iPad. And so the most natural and intuitive method of input seems to be just using your fingers. But when you need the precision of something like a stylus or even a pencil, you, it starts, the vision starts to cloud up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can't, it's almost like we would benefit from having an, an Apple OS and you, whatever peripherals you want to buy for it, whether you just want to use, like, imagine if you, if Apple shipped you a Mac, okay. And it runs an OS that works across all their products, Apple OS, theoretically. And then from there you can choose, do I want to use this whole iMac with just my fingers and hit the screen all day, like a Microsoft studio computer, or, or do I want to buy just a mouse or just a keyboard? Is there an on-screen keyboard that pops up? How does that integrate with AR and VR in the future? Do you know? Can I put on a pair of glasses and all of a sudden the keyboard, virtual keyboard, shows up on my lap? It's really hard to distill a clear vision for what these technologies will be, and I feel like uh, the cursor is so much a part of our everyday lives. When we made the jump from typing lines of code into a terminal to actually having a pointing device. That felt so huge. That was a paradigm shift in computing, chiefly for the consumer. Mm. And a touch-first interfaces are another huge paradigm shift for the consumer because it just feels so much more natural than trying to use a device and then tell that device what to do on the screen. You're just doing it yourself with pointers that are built in. So how do you maintain a separation between consumer and then professional experiences through through one OS, is it possible, or do you think there need to be? Do are we gonna are we gonna circle back to this era like Microsoft, where there is an enterprise version of Mac OS? You think Apple yeah, ever go there? Like, that kind of seems like the the worst solution. Where I, it just feels like a cop out to have a oh I'm in work mode and I switch a toggle. Yes, and a bunch of things change. Like, that, that would work. No one wants the future. Yeah, where's the fun in that? Yeah. <laughs> I would hope we could do better than that. And it's just for me, it all comes down to like tap targets and whatnot. It's mm -hmm. just you you would need to make them bigger on the Mac in order for it to be a comfortable touch experience. And insofar as doing that, you lose a lot of the, like the beauty of the Mac is just, you can, there's no guessing. Like you can look and you see all, you see all mm -hmm. the buttons. If you click them, it does this. Whereas the iPad hides a lot more out of necessity because the tap targets are so big that you can't have them on screen all at once. So it becomes this thing where, again, you have these two concepts that are fighting and I wonder, and you can't just have it so, Oh, as soon as you approach your finger toward the screen, it suddenly grows them. That also feels cheap. So it's, I don't know if it's a question of trying to find a middle ground between the touch targets being uh, Mac and that they're not mm -hmm. ginormous, but they're also touchable. Um, but that's another area where I just, I can't help but think, man, Windows has been trying this so hard for so long. And I just, I don't see myself picking up like a, a surface and being like overjoyed by the experience anytime soon. So it, it's so tricky. And then at the same time, the iPad seems like every year 
it's marching closer toward the Mac. Like you look this year and we have those, we even have like the file and edit menu, mm-hmm. keyboard shortcuts and whatnot. So it's hard to not see it on a crash course toward the Mac. And maybe we just have to wait like 10 more years until it just keeps knocking more and more little checkboxes off. But it's true. We see products like Apple Watch gaining more iPhone funny, so to speak, per se. And we know that the end game is not the Apple Watch cannibalizing the iPhone. People are always going to need a bigger screen. Apple Watch is built for quick interactions. But a lot of people that slap on an Apple Watch are finding themselves picking up their phone less and less. Mm. And so I think Apple's vision for the iPad is very much each one of these products has a place in the ecosystem. Come join our walled garden. (laughs) No, it's a pretty compelling argument. Yeah. And I see that with the watch too. Like every year, it seems like with adding like the independent cellular connectivity and everything, they like the idea of you just being able to go for a walk with just your watch and even leave your phone at home. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a pretty exciting future. I don't think anybody looks at a device and says, I wish this was more dependent on something else. It's Mm -hmm. just a natural extension and why everybody was so happy when I think iPhones never, you don't need to sync them to iTunes anymore. That was such a, a pivotal moment in the iPhone's history. And now it's been, gosh, probably like eight years since I last plugged my iPhone into iTunes or anything. So when you think about it at the time, there was a lot of outrage on the developer end of the spectrum because it's, how am I going to configure the phone now? What am I going to do? And right. the quick answer of that is just plug it into Xcode. But for many prosumers, these professional consumers, which we, we talk about this extensively on the show, Apple's developed this demographic on their own of prosumers, people that that are scratching the surface of what these things are capable of, maybe not maxing these things out to their full potential, but really asking a lot of questions, constantly learning new things with their devices, testing the limits of uh, what a MacBook Air can do. Can you edit video on it? If, if so, how many streams of 4K? And how does that change with the advent of M1? All these different questions, Apple's really developed that demographic on their own, the prosumer. For sure, no. It's you no, know, it's a fun place to be. I, I really like that they fostered a computing platform that you just don't sit down and use it. That there is that excitement about seeing how far you can push it and and doing more challenging and fun things with it because you can, you can grow as a person with your computer. Now, on the topic of Apple Watch, Mark Gurman had a report, a leak, a leaky leak earlier this <laughs> week, and he was talking about Apple Watch. He says Series Seven has a whole lot in store. Overall, it'll be a little thicker supposedly due to better battery life. I'm hoping, I'm crossing my fingers. Mm, he didn't say that, okay. but it sounds like overall it'll be thicker though the display portion, Apple may be using a new lamination technique that also sh- not only shrinks the borders, but makes the display portion a whole lot thinner. So the device overall is getting thicker, but the display portion is getting thinner. So I, mm. I think to me, that means more battery life. So crossing my fingers. Yeah, that's what I would think too. What else could it be? More sensors? I guess they've, they've been so much talk around solutions for diabetic users and whatnot. Maybe they've mm-hmm. got something there that would maybe run a slightly thicker sensor. According to German from, Blue, from Bloomberg, I'll start that over. And according to Mark from Bloomberg, he's saying that those features are still delayed as far as blood sugar, body temperature sensors, Apple's saving all that for 2022. Uh-huh. He is mentioning that it will gain ultra wideband functionality to work very much like an AirTag. If you lose it, you can use that precision finding with a U1 chip of some sorts. We talked a lot about Apple Watch and how independent that's it's become compared with the iPhone. Can we see any kind of 
I understand we won't get full feature, but any kind of light version of Apollo on the Apple Watch. Have That's you thought about that at all? Yeah. Is there a beta lying around on a blue on a thumb thumb drive somewhere in your <laughs> office? There might be. It, it's one of those things where it's so tricky being like an indie dev because like where it's just you and there's only so many hours in the day, you've got to picture, you've got to choose each thing you work on with a lot of care because but it's like that old Apple commercial from ages ago where like when you're picking one thing, you're saying no to another thing. Mm -hmm. So it's there's a thousand no's for every yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So by saying yes to the Apple watch, I'd be saying no to something else. And that's tricky when there's arguably quite a few more things that I'd love to build in uh, chiefly like a better iPad and Mac app that I think would garner a lot more use and love mm -hmm. from users than the Apple watch app. But it's something that I'd honestly love maybe in a fantasy world in a year from now where I'm like, hey, I've done just about everything I want to do. That sounds like a really fun project to sit down and finish up. But it's it's tricky because for me, it's one of those things where I love my watch for what it does and as like a fitness device. But I've personally never found myself like sitting in a grocery store line being like, I'm going to scroll reddit for a bit in in so far as i'd look at my watch instead of my phone like that feels like a phone experience to me and maybe i'm just completely missing the boat there like, i'm sure there's tons of people who adore that but for me it's hard to get excited about building something that maybe i'm not going to use and that's like the most selfish sentence ever but like it, no, it's, but i think it's important i think one of the reasons why apollo is so cohesive so full-featured is because right you're designing something for yourself you're designing something that not only you'd be happy to recommend, but something that you'll want to use every day. And I, yeah, and I think that it really speaks to a product when you can tell like the people who build it enjoy using it. And mm -hmm. I, I think if I was to use the watch app uh, or build the watch app rather, I'd have to sit there and force myself to use it exclusively for a week or two and just be like, oh, this is what people are talking about. Okay, this isn't so bad. <laughs> and then I could get excited about it. But right now it's just, it's not something that I think I would use a lot just because it's not how I personally use my Apple Watch. And it's not something I get a ton of requests for. If people were screaming for the heavens for it, that would be a different story. I'd, I'd probably mm -hmm. accelerate that. But there's other things that um, there's a little bit more demand for that I'm trying to focus on a little bit more than that. I think it's pretty remarkable. Again, when I downloaded Apollo for the first time, this felt if Apple made a Reddit client, this is what it should be. It felt <laughs> so full featured and, and so well thought out. No, I, and that and it's when i found out wait there's just this one guy named christian selig that's just what wait one guy that's behind all of this <laughs> that's astonishing and it really speaks to your, your talent and and your vision thanks it's i think it helps a lot that i'm building something that like it's legitimately fun to work on so many people mm -hmm. especially in the ios developer community they joke that we all create like a new Xcode project every week because we're chasing a new idea or something but apollo is so multifaceted between having a video player, like media playback, uh, a markdown editor, like comments. Like it has so many different aspects where if I'm like, oh, if I'm board building this one aspect, I've almost got like a mini app in and of itself in another area that I probably have to finish up. So it's legitimately so much fun to work on that I, I feel like I can work on it for a full day, get a bunch done. And I don't feel like burnt out after a week. Mm -hmm. It's just it, the energy still there. So I feel like that helps a lot more than maybe having a corporation with 10 developers who are kind of just building it Again, nothing wrong with that, but they're building it out of this is my job. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it just brings a slightly different energy to the table. And it, the, the more I really enjoy doing this approach, maybe ends up in a little bit more productivity per hour. That's definitely very interesting. 
I want to talk a little bit about the ongoing antitrust lawsuit with the whole Epic versus Apple ordeal. I'm not going to ask you to pick sides, but there <laughs> is sure. there there is something in the news that's been circulating, and it's this whole idea of an antitrust law that has been introduced that would require Apple to ship naked iPhones, and by that. All you're getting is the OS, no apps, no pre-installed apps, no Apple Music, no Apple Mail, Apple Maps, nothing. You'd get an iPhone with a home screen, no apps on it. And then from there, you could sideload whatever you needed or go onto the app store and pick which email client you wanted to use or which messaging uh, client you'd wanted to use. How do you see if this were to materialize how would you see Apollo fitting into that kind of ecosystem? Would you market the app a little bit differently? Do you think Apple would uh, invent something where developers can still promote their apps similar That's to the way they, they can be promoted now? So I mean, in picture, this... picture buying an iPhone and there being no apps on it out of the box. Except the app store? Like we still have the app store in this Except situation? Except the app store. Okay, okay. It's That's... not clear in this law. It could be where they Nothing. could keep with there's rumors of all these portless iPhones and that might be out of the question if this passes because it might be back to where you have to take an iPhone out of the box, plug it in the computer, decide what you want to put on it. Or maybe it's like when we got the CD-ROMs and the cereal boxes, like you got your mm -hmm. own app store with your Cheerios. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, no, man, that would be weird. I honestly don't think, I, I find a lot of these exercises around like, oh, should we have third-party apps or should we allow, they're all very interesting, like academic thought exercises. Mm -hmm. For me, I don't, I like, I, I can see why people would want that. For me, I don't think I'd do anything differently. I love that the App Store makes Apollo really easy to install. Integrating like a third party payment system sounds like a nightmare of like logistical nightmares for me that I definitely don't want to do. So I feel like I could totally understand a bunch of people being like super stoked about it and using the heck out of it for their apps. For me, I don't think I'd do anything. If, the, if it was only the App Store, I'd probably still just keep doing what I'm doing now. And maybe put up a few ads on the app store for it and hope people download it. But fundamentally, I, I think I, I, I like the app store model for what I'm doing and it, it's worked and it's worked really well for me. So I think I'd probably just whatever guidance Apple would say, this is probably how you should handle this move going forward. I'd probably follow the, so the, the advice. So the fact that Apple does have its own in-app payment setup already configured for all apps that are on the app store, including yours, is that an incentive? Is that part of the value proposition for you oh, in choosing iOS as a platform? Because a lot of developers oh, yeah. are saying, I, I have no problem. I can integrate things like Stripe or PayPal very easily. So why should I be boxed in? Why should I be forced to use, to go by Apple's rules and give them a percentage of my earnings and things like that? What, what would you say to those people? And you answer that if you don't want to go there. Because it's Oh, no, very, it's fine. No, it's a tricky subject. Like I, I, I can totally see where those people come from. For me, it's, I think for me, the, they're decreasing friction in any way possible. Like that's kind of like mm -hmm. my whole thing with my app and payment is like a big area. If you want somebody to pay for your thing and you have to make them jump through seven hoops, like a lot, I think you'll lose a lot of users just mm -hmm. doing that. Would you lose 30 or 15% of your users? Like I honestly think probably, I bet if I put up a screen in there, I was like, create an uh, apollo.com account enter your credit card here i'll try my hardest not to get hacked yeah and yeah or the tap through like rate is what we should call tap it. Through, yeah yeah but no, no i think most people would be like yeah i'm good 
and then just mm-hmm. drop out. Whereas with iTunes, like most of the time, it's like a single like tap the side of your phone and you're done. And that's invaluable for me. That being said, I, I, I get where some people are like, I'm glad that works for you, but maybe my model doesn't have the margins that allow for a cut as large as Apple's. And yeah, I, I totally see where they're coming from. And, and it may be a situation, if not a separate payment system, just letting you talk about how you can pay on your website would probably be a fair proposition. And And I think a a lot of where this animosity comes from in in the dev community is Apple does from the very beginning have a history of playing favorites. Things like Amazon Prime, where they were only taking 15%, not 30 from them because they were a huge conglomerate. And it's, does that really make any sense when nowadays you have things like the, the, the small developer uh, platform where Apple will only take 15% if you're making less than a million dollars on your platform. So it's like they were giving, it's like an unfair tax break. You're giving more to the people that are making more money than the little guys, the indie (laughs) dev. Or even if they just, I feel like it would have gone over a lot better in a lot of people's heads if they were at least a little bit more upfront with that insofar as Mm -hmm. saying, look, Amazon just operates on a different scale. If we want to keep them happy, this is what we got to do. Like... That's just kind of how it is, rather than it just being a little bit backdoor, back alley kind of thing. I think, yeah, I think everybody appreciates a little like upfront, clear, transparent policies around that. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining oh, us, Christian. It's it's this been a blast, and so I, I love me. that you're you're sharing your insight with the community here on the show. On Twitter, I'm Christian Seelig. I'm sure and I'm sure people no, already know this. My website's ChristianSeelig.com. I'm typically Christian Seelig everywhere except for Reddit, where I am. That is. Excellent. That's that's where the people can find you. Go ahead and give Christian a shout out over on social media. You can find me over on Instagram and Twitter at Bromshank. That's B R A H M S H A N K. Again. Thank you, Christian, so much for joining the show today. It's been been wonderful.